That was me, walking the stage at my recent graduation on May 26, 2019 from City College of San Francisco. When Donald Trump, a climate denier, was elected into office, I decided to join the resistance by empowering myself through education. In November of 2016, right after the election, I registered to complete a certificate program in sustainability. I wanted to arm myself with facts rooted in science so I could help others prepare for the impacts of climate change. I'm telling you this story because my education is what brought me to Eyes on Conservation. This two-year certificate program changed the way I perceive and understand the world and gave me the confidence to share my knowledge with others. I feel lucky that the community college in my city is not only free for San Francisco residents, but it also offers excellent courses with passionate instructors who are committed to lifelong learning. In this episode of Eyes on Conservation, you'll have the chance to be a student again too. I'll take you with me as I learn about the ecology of the Mendocino Coast, one of the many outdoor ecology classes I took as part of my coursework. I hope you'll enjoy learning with me. Welcome to episode 179, Ecology in the City. Those little guys, is, have you seen them on Ocean Beach? Yeah. 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 There are other plovers that look very much like them. You can recognize them because they only have one of those black bands. The snowy plovers were listed in 1993 as threatened and endangered. And so with this listing come certain obligations of the government to protect them and their habitat. Their preferred nesting is on the beach and their eggs are camouflaged to be on the beach. But the beach is not safe anymore. And so they found that instead of nesting on the beach, they nest now in the gravelly shores of the 10 mile little river that comes down here. So further inland, further away from dogs. I go to Mori Point and there is a dog leash law. And I would say of the 20 dogs I see there, 19 are off leash. That explains actually why in San Francisco they want to have areas without dogs even on leash because when there is a leash law it's not respected. It's more respected if there is a no dog law. You just heard my professor Krima Poga talking about the snowy plover habitat we visited at McCarriture State Park in Mendocino County. Now let's visit the halls of City College of San Francisco to talk with Krima one-on-one about her background and her passion for teaching ecology to lifelong learners. I'm here with Krima Poga, who's a professor of ecology and biology at City College of San Francisco. And I've had the pleasure of taking her outdoor ecology classes all around the San Francisco Bay Area. It was one of the most immersive educational experiences that I've had because you're right there experiencing the ecology that we're learning about rather than being at a distance in the classroom. So if you could start by telling me a little bit about your background, who you are, and how you came to be a professor of ecology at City College of San Francisco. In the 70s, I um, was part of a group of younger people um, who wanted to go back to the country. And so I um, went to a very poor village in south of France and lived off the grid and 
gathered my own herbs and whatnot. And I have to say that after four years, that became intellectually not stimulating enough. I thought, oh, so maybe I should go to university. And there was a new program in Germany about um, the development of rural areas. So there was this ecology and agricultural interface, which was really interesting to me. So when totally unrelated to this all, I fell in love with someone in the United States and got this opportunity to change my profession and the challenge of understanding the biology behind ecology better was super opportunity. So I went back here to um, San Francisco State, got a master's in ecology and systematics. So I actually went to National Park Service and said, is there something that you want to know? Because I also was really committed. I want it to be useful. I didn't want to do all this work and then it gathers dust and did my master's thesis on a little endangered plant, Lysingia germanorum in the Presidio. I learned about the Lysingia and this is a very delicate flower that only grows on the sand dunes in parts of San Francisco and it could be our pride and joy of our city <laughs> and yet it's threatened by invasive species and human trampling and I wouldn't have known about it mm -hmm. you know had I not taken mm -hmm. ecology classes. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much how I came here realizing that if we want to change people's attitude toward the environment we have to start with the people. And that's why I'm a little bit less hardline than other ecologists, because I really think, yes, we will do some damage by getting the people out in nature and trampling all around. But if we don't get them there, then they'll not care. I know that you also teach biology here, mm -hmm. too. So if you could explain to listeners you know, what the difference is actually between studying the ecology and studying biology or even environmental science. Mm -hmm. So the biology is maybe a little bit smaller in focus than ecology. Ecology, in my mind, is really how everything hangs together. And it is interdisciplinary. There's a lot of information and insight that we gain from geology, from biology, from economy. And what I think is so amazing about those two disciplines is that I feel biology can be seen as a microcosmos. So in ecology, we can have a broad perspective and study ecosystems, or we can consider a little heap of dung an ecosystem and, and study what's going on in there. And all the things that we can see in an ecosystem or in a heap of dung, competition and succession, all the same things happen in our bodies too, which is more what we associate with biology. You know, the, the physiology, the anatomy, how things work, what, what their function is. It's a mirror image of the world at large. Let's go back to these outdoor ecology classes. How many classes do you teach like this? I teach the Delta, the San Francisco Bay, the city of San Francisco, and I'm doing coastal Mendocino. How did you develop these classes? Was this something that came to fruition here at City College? I had done similar work in that community I worked with in Germany, again, trying to get people to appreciate, getting the people to do something. For example, I organized a toad rescue effort where um, a lot of seniors and kids came out to carry those toads from one part of the street over the other in their, in their mating period. And I really thought that that 
increased the level of engagement and took the political posturing out of the debate about these things. And I felt also really touched by how adults and kids alike can get this awe effect. And coming here, that was kind of a dream, getting people to um, appreciate nature. When I came here, there was a um, professor who had developed three or so of these weekend courses, but he taught them. And when he retired, that was an opportunity to then take over. I developed then the others like the city and um, the Delta when they started talking about the problems in the Delta. And I read in the newspaper that I think 90% of Californians didn't know where the Delta even is. Well, certainly our listeners do not know what the Delta is, so you can tell us all you want. This is your opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think actually now with all the talk about the Delta tunnels, it has become a little bit more in people's minds. But at the time, this was when the debate started, and it's a very important thing to decide upon getting people there, seeing what there is to protect in terms of, you know, the, the water war is between agriculture and drinking water on the one side, and then is there enough water in the delta, which is where <clears throat> Sacramento and San Joaquin River come together and then flow out to the Golden Gate. So is there enough water to sustain the natural systems that are there, our fish and our wetlands and so forth? We are going out at night and we're seeing the sandhill cranes and you know people go into Africa to see phenomenon like that and here are these thousands of cranes coming in and depending on having water in the delta. So I think it's it's a different impact. And then hopefully they these people who take the classes act as multipliers and talk with other people about it and go back and show the sandhill cranes to others and then that can inform hopefully those decisions about uh, should we have tunnels or is there another way? So City College of San Francisco, one of the things that I love about it is that it's free, you know, Mm -hmm. and that San Franciscans can learn and have an in-depth knowledge about where they live for free. Mm -hmm. And I'd just love to hear what you think about the value of having this as a resource for San Franciscans. It's a lot of uh, lifelong learners in those classes. One thing is certainly to increase the appreciation for the natural world, to um, educate people about issues that they might vote on. I really have that in all my classes, whether it's the dog leash, um, you know, very local, or something California-wide like the tunnels. Often these are also gateway classes. Just in the recent one, which was the San Francisco City, I had a couple of younger students who are afraid of science. They are very interested in the science, but they are turned off maybe by bad science education in their high school, by the language that is used in science classes. They are afraid of research, of speaking. It's kind of this almost also a class issue, right? Oh, there's academia there, and science is especially academic in the perception. I think it can be, yeah, you can do this. You know, what you need is the passion and you have to have some resilience because science classes are maybe a little harder than others but they don't need necessarily to be. I'm a prime example (laughs) growing up in Catholic school with almost zero science education Mm -hmm. and never really focusing on that until I came back to City College Mm -hmm. and I started my science education here. 
focusing more on the value of, of what City College brings to the community of San Francisco, you know, how would you describe the demographics of your students and how do they use this ecological knowledge that they gain through these classes that you teach in the outdoors? With this example coming back to the tunnels or the dog leash, or shall we cut down those eucalyptus trees on Mount Sutro? You know, those are things that are at the heart of um, San Franciscans. And they have to vote on these things. And there is so much misinformation. And also, maybe coming from a different country, I'm sometimes really shocked about the illiteracy in terms of understanding science or ecology, that I think these classes are, are really there to educate the San Franciscans about the resources they have. There are so many well-meaning people here, but you know the, the way to disaster is sometimes really plastered with these good intentions. A highlight or a focus of the last class I was teaching was about this movement of pollinator gardens. So you're thinking you're doing a wonderful thing if you're picking up a pollinator mix in a nursery and then put it into your garden, but you don't realize that that has an impact on certain pollinators over others. So this is just a small example of bringing a little bit more literacy. All right, let's go back and hear a little bit more from our weekend in Mendocino. How many petals? Four. Four. What family? Brassica. <laughs> exactly. So this is a wallflower. You have two rare and uh, endangered plants. One is the Menzies wallflower. The Menzies wallflower is also yellow, but there is a common wallflower that looks just like it. This is not made for long survival here. Right? It does a boom, comes up real early, makes lots of flowers, and then pieces it. Menzies is the rare one? Menzies is the rare one. There's a bunch of species on iNaturalist that look very similar. Yeah, so it's probably just the common one, actually. So most recently, I took the Ecology of Mendocino Coast class with you. Tell me a little bit about how that course came to be, and then walk us through the, the weekend. The goal really is, first of all, to um, develop a sense for all the different habitats, co coastal habitats. And an interest of mine is how different plants and animals adapt to the different challenges that each habitat really poses for them. We are starting at McCarrico Park and we're spending a whole day there because it is so rich. It's one of the biggest dune systems in the western United States. It has riparian area around a little freshwater, a brackish lake, and it has a beautiful tide pool area and it has a haul out for harbor seals yes the rookery the rookery exactly so these are harbor seals so harbor seals don't have ears that are visible exactly so no ears makes it possible to stay in the water it's not that they don't have ears they have no, no external yeah. ears no yeah. external ears well the others can stay underwater too but if there might be you know, with these evolutionary questions, we can hypothesize what advantage it would be. We don't know why exactly, right? So yes, these are bottom feeders. They dive deeper than sea lions that are more feeding in the water column. Could be that having little ears is disadvantageous for that. It's also if you have just little things sticking out, um, it's a problem to keep them warm. 
Any other differences you know between sea lions and harbor seals? They're able to kind of, like a sea lion can more like walk on land, like using its flippers. Yeah, but like, just, like they just like, like wobble. They kind of do the worm, like exactly. the harbor seals. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. These questions, what's the challenge and what solutions have evolved is useful. You can apply that to everything in your own body too. Go out and make observations about that. Think about why would I find a particular organism here and not there and what adaptations do they have that allow them to be successful competitors here. They can stay underwater for really extended periods of time and they need oxygen for doing that. So what they do is they actually exhale before they dive because they want to get rid of all the carbon dioxide which would trigger the need to breathe again. When they dive they reduce their heartbeat from about 75 to 80 beats per minute to 5 to 6 beats per minute. So you would think that's not very smart if you need oxygen going to your muscles. But the adaptation they have is that they have way more myoglobin in their muscles stored, which can capture oxygen. Yeah, so they store oxygen not in the lungs, as one would think, but in their muscles and in their blood. The next day we are going to Vendem Park, and in each area I have students present on something. So good morning! Here used to be a big sign about abalone, which is gone, and I think it's just they don't want people to think about abalone right now. <laughs> <laughs> but we will. Um, Hilda will give a presentation on abalone. So this is a red abalone shell that I just happen to have at home. <laughs> so we can pass this around. What are abalone? So I didn't even realize this until I started doing the paper, but abalone are actually a marine snail. I guess I always thought it was a shellfish, so that was, that was already very, a shellfish, like an oyster or something. So that was already surprising to me. So it's, it's very much a snail, so I'll pass this around. So this is the head. So he's got tentacles, he's got eyes, um, there's three holes as you can see on the shell and then um, that's used for reproduction, waste elimination and breathing through those holes. So one of the great things about City College of San Francisco is that all of the students actually live in San Francisco. So I caught up with Hilda after she gave her presentation about abalone to ask her a few questions about these ecology courses. I'm here with Hilda. Why don't you tell me like a little bit about your background, who you are, where you're from, and what you do for a living? Well, hello everyone. Um, yeah, so I'm Hilda. I do finance and project management in healthcare right now, but my passion is ecology and the environment and trying to make nature run its course as it should be rather than with all these human influences. I'm from New Zealand, so we always grew up with like an amazing connection to the environment. When I was growing up, there were seahorses in the water. You could eat the clams from the beach. Whales would wash up on shore and the whole community would go down and pour water on the whale and push it back into the water. I grew up with an understanding that people have a very special connection to nature that you don't want to lose. 
when I found out CCSF courses were free and they had a whole ecology section, ecology of Mendocino County, there's ecology of San Francisco, ecology of the Bay. I just thought it was really fascinating. And now that I live here permanently, I want to know and understand the land we live on. Abalone eat algae, kelp and seaweed. And then when they're not eating, they're usually just stuck to the rock trying to um, hide from predators. And their most common predators are the sea otters and sea stars. They monitor the population annually and have a specific season for taking of abalone. And the last two years, they've closed it off because of the population issues. And right now, it's banned until 2021 because the stocks have just not been recovering. Some of the reasons for that, so it was really starting in August of 2011. There was a toxic um, algae outbreak off the coast of Sonoma County, which caused a massive um, die off of all marine life. And then two years later, you had that um, mysterious sea star wasting disease that we talked about that wiped out 80% of the sea star population, which resulted in the explosion of the purple urchins, which compete for the same food as the abalone. The purple sea urchins are known as, the they call them the goats of the sea. They just eat everything. <laughs> they just march onward and eat everything in their way. So Hilda, you've become quite the abalone expert. I'm sure that you impress all of your friends with this new ecological knowledge of yours. The knowledge that we learn from class that I communicate to other people I would say 80-90% of my friends don't know the ecological history of the area. <laughs> it's really interesting how distant people are from the land we live on. Why do you think it's important for people to learn about the ecology of the region that they live in? I think it gives you a very good connection to your environment. You can appreciate the world and your small part of the world that you live in. People are thinking a lot about the bottom line, which is just money. And there's not exactly a price on your environment. It's something you want your kids to be able to enjoy in future generations going forward. People don't understand the importance of these ecosystems to maintaining balance in the earth. And you already see issues with that, you know, building into fire zones and the forest fires. And the crazy thing, I think, like especially coming from a finance background, is people don't make the connection that these billions of dollars in fire damage and rebuilding could have been prevented if we didn't build in those fire zones or if we let the forests have ground fires naturally and we're losing a lot of the species in this world and people don't understand all those downstream effects that we're experiencing and don't make the connection. So that was my classmate Hilda Nung who shared with us her expert knowledge on the abalone. So let's go back to City College of San Francisco and our conversation with Professor Krimapoga. I remember taking the ecology of San Francisco, mm-hmm. and I remember visiting the green hair streak butterfly habitat, and I had never seen them before, never known that they only live in this one hill in San Francisco, and then we're able to walk up to the outcropping of rocks, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden there's these little tiny green butterflies flitting around, mm-hmm. and it's magical. 
To take it a step further, you taught us that it was just because of people in the neighborhood that decided to bring mm-hmm. back their habitat to mm-hmm. protect this small ecosystem. Yeah, you know, that. That, is, um, that was just one day, and I have that uh, really a little bit of a focus on always highlighting Mount Davidson. There was Mady Brown in the 20s, and this is a woman who started this movement of collecting seeds and sending them to the senators, and she got Roosevelt uh, um, involved in saving Mount Davidson. In Glen Park, we had a group of three women. They were called the Eucalyptus Girls. They um, prevented Glen Park from becoming a freeway, that canyon. And we visited a guerrilla gardening operation where an um, Irish woman who looked out of her Um, window saw an ugly patch of Caltrans property um, at the exit of Vermont Street on 280 and she decided to plant it. Now it's this thriving, beautiful area. That is, is really important for me and for me that belongs to the ecology. We are part of it and we cannot take ourselves out of this. So we are in it for the good and the bad. We have destroyed a lot but we also obviously have a lot of um, power to bring some things back if we do it right. We discuss the, the human impact, we discuss things like the, um, the gentrification that goes hand in hand with the greening, you know, just to, to have different, different viewpoints on all that. I don't really know where you would otherwise get this information in a condensed form like that. Speaking about the different viewpoints, for the Ecology of Mendocino Coast class. We visited a state park, McCarriture State Park. One of the things that you talked about while we were there was this delicate balance that parks have to play between humans and their need for recreation and then nature and its need for restoration. In the 1880s, you have to imagine that California was really blanketed here at the coast with redwood trees. And as the saying goes, nobody could really imagine that these redwood trees would all be cut. And so when Gold Rush came and this need for so much trees, there was one guy, he was the editor of a local newspaper here, and he was the first one to say, you know what, we have to do something. And that was as early as 1880. We have to do something because otherwise we will be left without any redwood. And it was actually his his initiative that the first official state park that was purchased by the California government was Big Basin down in um, Santa Cruz. That was in 1927. You might have heard all these budget cuts for the state park system and the conflict in a park system like that is recreation versus restoration. If you want anyone to care, you need to let them go here and that comes at the expense of restoration. It's probably hard for you as an ecologist, as a teacher of ecology, to offer both sides. You know, it's it's definitely a difficult problem. But when you look at um, Ducks Unlimited, which is the biggest hunting association in the United States, Ducks Unlimited has become a conservation organization. And why? Because they realize if they want to hunt ducks, they have to protect the habitat for ducks. And so it's about forging maybe these collaborations. In Mendocino County, we talked about um, 
the class you took, we talked about the abalone fisher. So it's the abalone fisher that actually saw the devastation, that the algae disappeared, that the urchins took over. And, you know, they, they have pretty much embraced this ban on abalone fishing now. So what I'm thinking is we have to forge these um, relationships with people. And it's not this difficult if you get them to sit down. As I said, a lot of people, the dog owners, they, they don't mean bad. It's just one has to explain that there are little birds that nest on the ground or that this is a restoration area and that the dogs that run through it break off the branches or that their urine over fertilizes an ecosystem that is adapted to a very low fertilizer. And I think with that just a little bit of understanding, people will be more open to saying, yeah, that makes sense. So let's just have one part for the birds and the habitat restoration and we can take our dogs elsewhere. If you don't hear the full story, you're not as likely to to care or do anything about it. And often the the people who are against restrictive measures, for example, of restricting dog walking to certain areas, they can be a little bit lopsided and they often make a caricature out of, oh, they don't want us to go anywhere. Oh, they want to cut down all the eucalyptus. And then this word gets around and the, the real information doesn't get out. In a city where we have such a homeless problem and people don't have enough to eat, not everyone needs to embrace that we have to save now a little green hair streak butterfly or uh, a scrunchy looking Lysingia germanorum. You know, this is the diversity in our city that is just reflected. There are people who care about the diversity of plants and animals, and then there are people who find their mission in doing something for the homeless, and both is really important. And I don't think we have to pit it against each other. But what I'm, as an educator, try to do is just to give people the tools to make informed decisions. That's all. You were mentioning diversity, and something that that I didn't know until I, I started taking these classes, and many people don't know because we live in such an urban center, is that San Francisco is actually a biodiversity hotspot. And mm-hmm. so there is a value, especially mm-hmm. now, in this era of climate emergency is what a lot of people are starting to call it now. Mm-hmm. There is a value in protecting this biodiversity. So I guess if you don't know about it, you know, how could mm-hmm. you protect it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's exactly that. And you know, San Francisco per se is not the hotspot, it's the region in which we are located. But because we had the Presidio and that was not developed, there are endemic species and so you alluded to the word endemic a couple of times. So species that are found in a particular region and nowhere else on the planet, like this Lysingia, just three little populations in the Bay Area, one in the Presidio of San Francisco, that, um, yeah, would the world be poorer if we lose that little species? You can think this or that, but um, there are enough stories that show how each um, puzzle piece has its function in an ecosystem. So leading into my next question, um, often in your classes you have to talk to students about species that are threatened or going extinct or have gone extinct. It was 127 million dying trees since 10 years ago. 
Yeah, so 127 million dying, like trees, dead, dying. trees that, that are dead. One of the culprits in this disease, so it's a fungal disease. Um, Alyssa was talking about the good fun, fungi, and now we're talking about the bad fungi. So this is a, it's a water mold, it's related to the, the fungi that causes um, the sudden oak death. The affected species, tanbark oak and laurel, are the hosts. They usually don't die, and then um, our host live oak and the other oaks are affected. And it needs moist conditions to go from one to the other, but it can also go from one tree to the other with these bark beetles. And it's another of those examples <coughs> that just shows that you know there are so many factors that already weaken the trees and there's the incredible drought stress, then there is diseases, and then there is absence of fires that would rejuvenate. There is the, the logging with the erosion that you know affects trees. So all these things together then make them more susceptible of dying. And it's really interesting to think about how the normal trees have defenses so for example, for these bark beetles, they bore a hole into the, into the stem to get to the vascular tissue where the sugar runs. <clears throat> and a healthy tree can produce like a glue, the, um, the sap, that then crystallizes and, and plugs this off. But in order to produce this, it's energetically very costly and you need water for it. And so again, it all hangs together because there is a drought. They cannot produce the, this uh, sap effectively that plugs these holes. And so with most of these tree diseases, they cannot really kill a very healthy, strong tree. But if there's other factors already weakening, just like us, then the immune system is compromised. The littlest thing can do you in. How do you stay positive? How do you help your students uh, stay positive or feel hopeful? It's really something I've been struggling with since my off-the-grid life. And we started our university studies with so much enthusiasm. We wanted to make the world better. And we came out pretty um, frustrated and depressed. And I think that is a real issue. I feel some of the efforts we do, the trying to get on top of the invasive species, for example, is probably a, a lost cause. So is trying to save those big mammals, and um, we are doing it a little bit, using them as ambassador species to draw attention to it. I think it's a lost um, cause, some of the things we do. And how I get positive is that I think just getting people out. There's more and more research out there that shows how important for our mental well-being, our emotional well-being, this contact to nature is. And I feel that part of that is diversity. It is has an intrinsic value, but it also has a real value for ourselves. And this engagement is positive in itself. And I can feel it in myself. Where do I get my, my nourishment from? I actually really get it a lot from being outdoors and 
you know, saying hi to my plant and animal friends and taking people out there. And just in my regular bio class, I have them do an extra credit project with National Park Service. And they came back the other day like little kids. You know, these are between 20 and 30 years old. Came back and they had seen a hawk altogether eating a mouse. And this was the, the talk of the day. That's National Geographic, right? There. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you know that, that they can still get so excited. And that, you know, that, that joy of, you know, that, those awe moments. Wow, this is really cool to see those sand cranes. And really, how can such a little bird make such an incredible sound? That you go through the world and you see so much more. You hear so much more. You know, you, you go and you have never heard that there are so many birds around you until, weirdly enough, someone draws the attention to it. It is true. It is depressing. We can't do anything about it. And in the meantime, we can still engage in a positive way. So in the end, what do you hope that once your students take these, these outdoor ecology classes, what do you hope that they walk away with? Foremost, an appreciation how complex everything is that I think we see that really well in any ecological conflict. What is good for one thing is bad for another. And that's not just human against uh, mountain lions. It's also, you know, an example, well, when, if I mulch, I save water. If I mulch, I make it really hard for the digging bees to find a place to dig their little nests in. You know, just that appreciation, not to not to jump to conclusions about the natural world and what is good and what is bad, but to appreciate that how everything hangs together is complex and we have to tread cautiously and lightly. You know, what makes me the happiest certainly is if someone says, well, maybe I can tackle going into science. Because I do think we need we need people from all walks of life to come to the sciences yeah. and to speak different languages because the language of science is, is really traditionally pretty off-putting. We need more scientists in America than just Bill Nye the science guy. Yeah, with the podcasts and with the blogs, there are s- such good writing and reporting now which makes it so much more palatable maybe or or digestible for the general public who is interested. I think that is a wonderful thing. Before we wrap up this interview, let's go back one more time to the ecology of Mendocino Coast and visit one of California's gems, a redwood forest. This peculiar tree sheds its needles not one by one, but in these branchlets. And so these branches, very acidic, very difficult to decompose. And so they form in a natural redwood forest, these really thick litter. Now, whatever large seed you make lands on top of all that acidic, non-nutritious litter and cannot germinate. And so it's pretty much a waste of all that energy to, to put into seeds. So what do they do? Yeah, they make seeds and in that little cone and that's it. Less than 10% of their reproduction is actually through seeds. For example, over there you can see how all the little um, sprouts are coming around. And chemically interesting is that they are inhibited in their growth as long as they are in the shade. 
So in other words, as long as mama tree stands. So basically, the babies are waiting there for mama to die so that they get their <laughs> chance at, at life. So once mama falls, then all of a sudden they all compete. But really, they are the same, they are clones. So if over 90% of the reproduction is by cloning, we get into this problem that we discussed before with the otters. They are all genetically related. Plus, their roots grow together. So they are successful. Some live to 2,000, 3,000 years without that genetic diversity. So that's a puzzle. So people have done DNA analysis and have found that there is a higher mutation rate in redwood trees than in similar trees. So I find it so interesting, you know, that one thing doesn't work, so you compensate with another. The geographical range from Southern Oregon to Monterey, that is also restricted to a very small little strip along the coast. And that is because of that dependence on fog. So you find it in moist canyons where the fog can gather and so forth. But here we are, 35 miles about from the from the coast so this is really an exception and the exception comes because this is here fed by groundwater mm -hmm. yeah, so it's in a they call it an alluvial flat they get their their water from not 45 percent from the fog as is usual yeah so that's why we have this little outpost of um, redwood trees right here all right, well, I want to say thanks for taking the time to talk with us today at Eyes on Conservation. And maybe this ecology program that you've developed here at City College will inspire some of our listeners to take these kind of classes mm -hmm. in their own ecosystems. <laughs> yes. Yes. All right, thanks so much, Krima. You're so welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Eyes on Conservation. I'd like to thank my guests, Krima Poga and Hilda Nung, for sharing their experiences with me about ecology in the city. I hope that this episode inspires you to look into lifelong learning in your own communities and get outdoors and learn about the ecology that surrounds you. If you like what you heard, please head over to patreon.com slash wildlenscollective to support us on an ongoing basis so our team can continue to bring you high-quality storytelling about conservation issues. Thank you so much for listening. 